Mary told me one time, she said, I just hate to sing. Every time that I sing, it's right before you preach. I don't know if it's about my preaching or what, but, you know, I love to hear her sing. I wish she'd sing every time before I preach, but then it's, um, I have to follow it, you know? Hey, isn't it good? I'll let go what Brother Eric said uh, just a little bit ago uh, about the tape. Uh, I think it's good to see the tape up. I heard several people as they came in say, isn't it good to sit in your own pew? There's nothing more Baptist than potlucks in your own pew, right? Maybe we'll get to have a potluck before too much longer. I don't know, but I think I even heard somebody kind of settle in, you know. Every other pew, that, that cushion hadn't been sat on in about a year. And so it ought to be good and fluffy, all the fluffs back in it, right? And so thankfully we get to, we get to settle in, we get to do all those uh, good Baptist things. And uh, I tell you, there's, uh, besides sitting in your own pew, uh, there may be nothing more comforting than a letter from home when you've been away for a while, right? And uh, I was recalling this week uh, something that I read. I remember reading, for some reason, uh, my grandfather had a copy of this in his, his study. He was a pastor there at the, at the church. And uh, he had a copy of this letter I remember reading. Somebody had given it to him, a humorous letter. And I remembered just enough of it to Google it, and I found it. And I thought it was appropriate this morning to start out with. It starts like this. It says, Dear Son, I'm writing this slow because I know you can't read too fast. We don't live where we did when you left. Your dad read in the paper that most car accidents happened within 20 miles of home, so we moved. It only goes downhill from there. And so, so we'll just stop there. But, you know, there's some truth just in those few lines. I actually did a little bit of research, and I found out that statistics, if I can say the word this morning, statistics show, at least one statistic that I read said that as many as one-third of all automobile accidents happen within about five to ten miles from home. And that's pretty crazy, right? It makes you want to move or something. I don't know, but if they're all happening right there close to you. But why do they happen within 5 to 10 miles from home? Uh, this article I was reading about this said that one likely reason could be that most people spend most of their time, they spend more time in that radius than they do anywhere else. So it makes sense, statistically speaking, that if you spend more time within that area, you're more likely to have an accident there than somewhere else. But it gave another very likely cause, which is probably more likely than just being in that area all the time. It's because we're more comfortable within that radius. Within that 5 to 10 miles from home, we're very comfortable. Now, we know the roads. We know there's a stop sign there, but there's never anybody coming, right? Until there is. Kind of like the other day, I almost got to experience this. I had the right-of-way, no stop sign on my way, just very close to the church here on a county road. And another vehicle never let up coming off the other road, blew right through the stop sign. Thankfully, I was a little bit further back, and we did not get to have an up-close encounter. It was closer than I would like for it to have been, though. But you know, you've been there, and, and uh, we let our guards down. We know the roads. We let our guards down, and we miss something coming. We miss that oncoming car we missed that object was in the road because, you know, I came through here yesterday and that box wasn't in the road yesterday. So I'm not even looking for it today. We missed the curve altogether maybe and eventually it gets us in trouble. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. And as we look there, you say, what in the world does any of this have to do with Mark chapter 14? 
Well, it doesn't have anything to do with Mark chapter 14 directly, but it has something to do with Scripture as a whole. Because, you know, sometimes we get comfortable with Scripture. We get comfortable with the storyline, just like we do driving those roads close to home. And as we read these familiar storylines, sometimes we have a tendency to skip details. Not on purpose, but because we're so familiar with the story, we know what's coming next, we just read right through it, and we miss some very important things. So this morning, we're going to look at this familiar passage of Scripture. And you know, it's this same principle of missing things. In familiar texts, it makes me uh, happy again. I mentioned this last time I preached, I'll mention it again. If you've been missing uh, Brother Eric's uh, sermons that he's been doing on Sunday morning and Sunday night about the familiar Bible stories from the Old Testament, you need to listen to those. Because we get so familiar, so comfortable with those stories, we miss a lot of these details. I hope you'll go back and listen to those if you've missed them. But this morning... As we look at this passage of Scripture, of course, it deals with the, the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and for most Christians, we're very familiar with this storyline as a whole. And, and, you know, as I was uh, trying to get, get to exactly what I'd preach this morning, and, and uh, I, I have to apologize right now to some of the teenagers and Miranda in the room, because this is where we've been on Wednesday nights as we've been going through the book of Mark. We're to this point in our study on Wednesday nights. And so just within the last couple of weeks, they heard some of this. And so it bears repeating, though, okay? There'll be some new stuff, too, if you're uh, here this morning or if you're listening online. But today, of course, is Palm Sunday. Now, we could have gone back and we could have preached about the triumphal entry of Jesus. You know, that's, that's the events that marked Palm Sunday when they laid the palm branches on the road. You know the story, and, and that's the way the Passion Week begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus, and he's, they call him Hosanna. They say, you know, the son of David has arrived. And then we fast forward to the end of the week. We go from the king entering lowly on a donkey to the king's earthly body dead in a tomb. But aren't we thankful for the hope of Easter Sunday? Because this week that is the Passion Week, might end with Jesus in the tomb. But the next week begins with our risen Savior who's still alive today. Let me catch you up with where we are. We're in Mark 14. Let me catch you up with what's gone on up until this point in this Passion Week. Of course, the triumphal entry happening there on the first day of the week, happening on Sunday. And then we have the cleansing of the temple. You remember Jesus going in and cleansing the temple? That happened on Monday, and then on Tuesday, Judas begins his deception as he meets with the Jewish leaders to begin negotiating about the price for which he will turn over Jesus, and then we don't know a lot about Wednesday, but it gets us to Thursday, and that's where our passage takes place here is on Thursday of Passion Week. Jesus and his disciples have observed the Last Supper. And Jesus instituted there in the upper room what we know today as the Lord's Supper. That's already happened as we get to our text. It says they left there, they were singing a hymn, and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed in great anguish that he said, if it's your will, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's happened. Judas 
has left and he's gone and he's, he's gotten the officers of, of, the, of the Sanhedrin and he's brought them back and the, and the soldiers and they've arrested Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story. The last thing that happens before we pick up in the story is it says all the disciples fled. Jesus is alone. Jesus is in custody. And we pick up the text in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Skip to chapter 15, verse 1. And immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? 
So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and for the principles that we can take from your word and apply to our lives today. And Father, as we walk through this text this morning, help us to be ever mindful of the great gift that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his blood that was shed for us. Help us to live like it, Father. Be with us now as we look at this text. Speak to us individually. Tell us what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at the text here and we pick up after the arrest of Jesus and we look at the trial of Jesus, of course, you note that Mark, I love Mark, he abbreviates things. Mark abbreviates trials of Jesus. We get kind of a compact view. If we look at the other gospel accounts, there's multiple aspects of the trial of Jesus that are missed here in Mark. There's multiple parts of the Jewish phase of the trial, multiple parts of the Roman phase of the trial, but Mark tells us everything we need to know this morning here in this compact account. Let's look through this. I want to look at a few details, and then we'll take some application from it here in the end, as we look at verse 53 of Mark chapter 14, it tells us, they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him, with the high priest, were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. As we look at this, it's important that we understand the setting in which this trial took place. Because when we understand the setting, we can do a little research on the setting and we get even more information that we might have missed otherwise. But as we look at this and we look at the other gospel accounts, it becomes very clear that this body before whom they took Jesus is the great Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin. Now, to understand that, we've got to go back to Deuteronomy, okay? As the, you don't have to turn there, but as the children of Israel are preparing to enter the promised land, Moses gives them a, a significant amount of instruction. It takes up several chapters there in the book of Deuteronomy about how they were to live in the promised land. And among all those instructions is a little bit about the judicial system, how to settle disputes. Now listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse 18. He says to them, he says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes and every town the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge the people fairly. Big word there. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for bribes for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. He says, follow justice and justice alone. And so as they begin to set up their way of life in the promised land, and the, the children of Israel in, in each town, as we get to Jesus' day, in each town that has at least 120 men, they would have a Sanhedrin, or a court, a body that settled disputes. In Jerusalem, they have the great Sanhedrin. 
That's where Jesus is, before the great Sanhedrin. For lack of a better term, it's the Jewish Supreme Court, and in some ways, a legislative body. That's who Jesus is before. This is a big deal. 71 members of the great Sanhedrin. You've got Sadducees, the priestly class. You've got Pharisees. You've got scribes. They're the experts in the law. Now, if you remember your knowledge of the gospel account as Jesus is teaching, who's after him? Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees. Guess what? They're the predominant members of the great Sanhedrin. There's also some elders, some well-respected men there. And the presiding officer, the chief justice, if you will, if we Americanize the story just a little bit, the chief justice is the high priest. The Sanhedrin had very specific guidelines that they had to follow. In order to stay within Moses' guidelines of following justice and justice alone, in order to provide a fair trial, as Moses had told them they should do, they developed some guidelines to ensure those things happened. It's good to have those guidelines, isn't it? We have those in our own legal system. Theirs included, they had to meet at a specific location, the Hall of Hewn Stone. That's within the temple precincts. You see, if they met and made a decision outside of this location, it wasn't valid. Why is it important to meet there? That way they can't go meet in secret. Justice has to be done in the open, where it can be done fairly. They sat in a semicircle around the room where every member of the Sanhedrin could see every other member of the Sanhedrin, another act of accountability. They had to vote individually on everything they did. They started with the youngest and went to the oldest. That way the younger member's decision wasn't influenced by the older member's decision. That way the older guys aren't bullying the younger guys into voting a certain way. They could vote their conscience. They were not allowed to meet at night. If they met at night, it was not valid. For the same reason they couldn't meet in a secret location. It had to be done in the open daylight. They couldn't meet during the times of the great feast because some of the decisions they made required fasting before the decision could be made. And you can't fast during the time of a great feast. Now here's something interesting. And Mark calls this out, this detail out, about witnesses. You see, in order for the charge to stand, you had to have at least two witnesses whose testimony agreed perfectly. If you didn't have two witnesses whose testimony was in agreement, charges were thrown out. Justice, and justice alone. One last thing. If they had a death penalty case, any verdict of death, it wasn't effective immediately. They had to wait a full 24 hours and come back and vote on it again. And they had to fast for that entire 24 hours as they thought and prayed on that decision. And as we read what we read in Mark chapter 14, something becomes pretty clear. When it came to getting rid of Jesus, the rules didn't apply. They would do anything and everything, including breaking some of their most sacred rules to get rid of Jesus. You see, they're not at the Hall of Hewn Stone. Where are they? 
It says, as we we read there in verse 54, Peter followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. They're not in the hall of hewn stone. They're at the high priest's house. They're meeting at night. And not only are they meeting at night, they're meeting during a major feast, during the feast of the Passover. Guess what? Mark also tells us they can't find two witnesses who agree. Remember, look back at verse 57. Some rose up and bore false witnesses against Jesus, or false witness against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple uh, made with hands, and within three days I'll build another with, made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. They're making up lies against Jesus, and they can't even get their lies to line up. They're taking the words of Jesus and they're twisting them to make them sound like he's wanting to to do physical violence. And then in verse 60, here's something interesting. You were not allowed to ask a leading question. You couldn't ask any question that would cause the defendant to incriminate themselves. Kind of like our Fifth Amendment right in the United States. We have the right not to incriminate ourselves. So did their defendants. In verse 60, It says, the high priest, the presiding officer, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and he answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, point blank, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? In other words, are you God? Jesus knew he had the right not to answer that question. Jesus knew he could remain silent. But his time had come and he said, I am. Jesus knew in that moment his fate was fixed. Jesus answered honestly. And he gave them everything that they thought they needed to take care of of him. Up until this point, he's remained completely silent. We're going to come back around to that thought here in just a minute, but right now I want you to think on this. The silence of Jesus in this moment, as they stood there and they're hurling assaults at him, and they're making accusations and false accusations, and we don't know how long they stood there doing it. I think I'd have trouble remaining quiet. I'd at least be mumbling or doing something. You know, that's not true. That's a lie. Jesus remained silent, and his silence stood in stark contrast to those lies that were reverberating all around the courtyard. The one who came to give love to all is now being denied even the most bare sense of justice. As we continue on, We had that false trial. And then they just made up some more false charges. Look in chapter 15. In chapter 15, Mark simplifies the matter for us. I told you that before, but but read chapter 15, verse 1. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They got everybody back together and they bound Jesus and led him away 
and delivered him to Pilate. Now, most likely what is happening here is they realize they violated the rules by having the trial at night, so they get everybody back together first thing in the morning when the sun came up. It's daylight. It's legal now, and they all, let's just let's rubber stamp what we did last night, but yet they didn't wait 24 hours. They just did it as soon as the sun came up, and it says they delivered him to Pilate. The Sanhedrin at this point didn't have the legal authority to kill anybody. The Roman government would have to do that. They needed Pilate to do their dirty work, so they lied. Luke gives us a greater account of what happens here. More details in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, verse 1, it says, The whole multitude of them, the Sanhedrin, arose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow. It's like they just walked up and found him, you know. Hey, we found this fellow doing these things. We found this fellow preventing the nation, or, or perverting the nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They didn't go and say, "Hey, we want you to kill him because we think he made a blasphemous statement." They said, "We want you to kill him because he's trying to overthrow the Roman government." Now, they know what they're saying is an outright lie. And even more proof is that if you if we go back to Mark and we were to look just a couple chapters before, it, it was, it was the, the Pharisees that, that they went to him and they, they said, should people pay taxes to Caesar? Now, you think the guy's wanting to overthrow the government. You say, uh-uh, you don't give him a dime. You know, we ain't giving him money. We're gonna, matter of fact, we're not giving him money. We're going to overthrow the government. That's not what Jesus said, is it? You remember the story, and Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Does that sound like a revolutionary? Does that sound like a guy who's trying to overthrow the Roman government? They outright lied, and they knew it. Mark chapter 15, verse 2. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. John gives us more detail there. Because there's a lot more to this little conversation than just what Mark gives us. In John chapter 18, verse 33, it says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, calling Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no fault. In him at all. So Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? 
what Jesus says is, yeah, I'm a king. But you see, their definition, what they're telling you, their definition of king and my definition of king are two different things. Jesus is telling him, I'm innocent. Yeah, I'm the king. As a matter of fact, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Mark tells us that after this, after Pilate says, I find no fault in him, that the chief priest began hurling more and more accusations, multiplying their accusations, coming up with anything and everything they could against Jesus. And we find out something very interesting in verse 3. The last part says, but Jesus answered nothing. Just like he had done standing before the Sanhedrin. Jesus, once again, silent before Pilate. All of that brings us to the end of the introduction of the sermon. To our first spiritual truth. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew what was about to happen. He knew the moment he stood before the Sanhedrin and said, yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. I am God. He knew that the moment he did that, he knew the cross was on the horizon. He knew it was coming and that it was coming imminently. Jesus knew the torture of the Roman cross. No doubt he, had, he may have seen it done before. Jesus was familiar with the technique. It was the most cruel form of execution that mankind has ever invented. We'll spare the details this morning, but we'll just say the U.S. Constitution would call it cruel and unusual. That's for sure. Not anything that you want you or anybody who's ever done anything to you. You don't want somebody to have to endure Roman crucifixion. Jesus knew it was coming. Yet as he stands before the Sanhedrin, as he stands before Pilate, he's silent. What does his silence tells us? His silence tells us he's at peace. Jesus Christ knows that in just a matter of hours, he will be stretched and quite literally pulled apart at the joints and nails through his hands, nails through his feet. He will be nailed. They don't numb that before they put the nails through. He'll be nailed to a cross. And he will endure pain and agony unlike very few human beings have ever felt. And he's at perfect peace. How? Why? Two reasons this morning. First of all, because he knew the end of the story. Jesus Christ stands there at perfect peace because he knows how it's all going to end. He knows what the prophets have said. He knows what he himself has said just very recently, right? He, he told the disciples just earlier the night before, you know, the, the, the same night he stood before the Sanhedrin, earlier that evening as they observed the Passover in the upper room, he told the disciples, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again. Now listen. He knows he's about to be on the cross. 
but he also knows he has to go and come back. So what does that mean he has to do? He's got to rise from the grave. Jesus knows what's going to happen. It gave him peace. Can I tell you that just like knowing the end of the story changed Jesus' mindset here, knowing the end of the story ought to give us a lot of peace as we walk through life as well. You say, well, how do we know the end of the story? We're not God. God knows all. He, well, guess what? God told us the end of the story, and he inspired holy men of God to write it down. If you're saved, you go through trouble in this life. The book says we will. But we end up in heaven. That ought to give us peace. That ought to give us some comfort in this life that though we face trials, the troubles we face here are nothing compared to the joy of heaven. That's what the Bible teaches us. And it ought to give us some comfort. But there's another reason for the peace of Jesus. And we see that here in the book of Mark as well. Turn back just a little bit in Mark chapter 14 to verse 32. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. He's in the garden with his disciples. He's praying. At verse 32, they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began uh, to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to, to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. At this point, Jesus' soul doesn't have peace. Jesus' soul, he says, his own words, is exceedingly sorrowful. Look what happens. Verse 35, he went a little farther, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Then he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, key words, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and he spoke the same words. What were those words? Not my will, but your will. And by the time Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, by the time Jesus stood before Pilate, guess what? He's given everything to the Father. And it's given him peace. I'd submit to you this morning that the reason Jesus had peace is because he was prayed up before the storm came. Jesus had already prayed before the storm came. He knew the storm was coming. You say, that'd be wonderful, Brother Jeremy. If I knew the storm was coming, I'd pray before it got here. Well, I'll just tell you right now, the storm's coming. The bad times are coming. The hard times are coming. And you say, well, that's just a lot of just... Bad news. Yeah, it is. But the good news is that Jesus cares. The good news is that God cares and that you can pray now ahead of the storm. You see, Jesus, that wasn't the only time Jesus prayed. The scriptures tell us that he was a man of prayer. We see his custom all through the Gospels. Luke 22, verse 39, this same story. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Luke is introducing it, says, He went to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. He went to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. 
In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, another story, after he fed the 5,000, it says, and, he, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Same story in Mark chapter 6, verse 46, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went to, out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. So he himself often withdrew and prayed. He often withdrew and prayed. The consensus of the gospel writers is that Jesus was a man prayer, not just when times were hard, not just when he was going through a tough time, not just when he thought he needed to ask God for something. Are we ever guilty of that? Wasn't something he did just when he was kind of feeling down that day and he needed a little pick-me-up, so he prayed. No, Jesus stayed in constant communication with the Father, and when his darkest hour he had peace because he'd already prayed through. I'll ask you this morning, are you prayed up? We've got another spiritual truth to go through. We're not ready to finish quite yet, but are you prayed up? Do you heed the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, pray without ceasing? Because here's the thing. Here's, here's a, another way that Paul said it. You know, I mean, we know that our trials... We're never going to face Roman execution, okay? We're never going to face a Roman crucifixion. Now, you go to Rome and you commit a capital offense, they may execute you another way, but they're not going to put you on a cross. We're never going to face that. But Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, stay prayed up, and you'll have peace. Quickly, one last thing. This is something that I don't know how many times I've driven right by it because I'm comfortable with this story, I'm familiar with this story, and I just miss this thing that's just staring me in the face. It's that thing that's there every time I go by it, but I don't see it all the time. It's kind of like you're driving up the highway and you say, you know, we go this way all the time, but I've never seen that house. Been there the whole time. Chapter 15, verse 12. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the we know what Pilate did, because verse 15 tells us, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. But you know, verse 12 isn't just a question for Pilate. That question that Pilate asked is a question we all ought to ask. What do I do with the one who's called the king of the Jews? 
You say, well, Brother Jeremy, I'm saved. I've already done what I need to do. Well, you're not finished. If you're saved, you ought to serve him. You ought to find your place and plug in and serve him. What do you do with the king of the Jews? He loved you. We ought to love him back. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you really need to ask the question, what do I do with Jesus? And the answer to that question is you ought to accept him. The eternal destiny of every human being is determined by their answer to the question, what do I do with Jesus? To prepare for our invitational hymn this morning, I want you to know there's coming a day. It may be very, very soon. But it's going to be too late to answer that question, what do I do with Jesus? But today there's time. Today there's time. What do you want to do with Jesus? If you're saved, you ought to commit to serve anymore. If you've never accepted him as your Savior, you ought to know that there's only one way to heaven. In, Mark, in John chapter 14, when he said, I'm going to come back, if I go, I'm going to come back, then later he said, I am the way. There's one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So the question this morning for you, the question this morning for me, what are we going to do with Jesus? Would you think on that as we stand and sing? Number 109. Thank you.